Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan, coming to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today on the show... Five billion people in the world have grown poorer whilst the rich, the billionaires and millionaires have amassed increasing amounts of wealth, wealth that they could not ever possibly spend in their lifetime. A recent report on wealth inequality shows billionaires in Australia have doubled their wealth since 2020. Also... For example, if one of your parents is myopic, if they wear glasses in the distance, about three times more likely to have a child with myopia. How much screen time do you average per day? Optometrists say it might be time to cut back, predicting nearly half the world's population could be nearsighted by 2050. And later today... We get taught so much whilst we're at school around kind of maths and science and and history and those sorts of things, but it's quite rare that at school we're taught about financial education. New research finds most Australians don't know what a credit score is. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia, thanks to the Community Radio Network and support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, war reform advocates are voicing their concerns following the confirmation of the Australian government's role in supporting airstrikes launched by the US and UK militaries in Yemen. The strikes follow an attempted blockade in the Red Sea, said to be in response to the state of Israel's invasion of Gaza by the Yemen-based Houthi movement. The attacks from the US and UK follow a decade-long conflict in Yemen. The war is estimated to have killed at least 370,000 people. And with 60% of the deaths due to starvation and lack of health care, a 2018 report from the UN named the continued conflict the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. I spoke to Dr Alison Bronofsky, member of Australians for War Powers Reform, about concerns of the attacks violating international law and escalating an already dire situation. Countries do not attack others, no matter what has happened, uh, to provoke them unless there is a direct threat to them or a resolution authorising it from the UN Security Council. In the case of the Houthis in Yemen, neither of those things apply. Therefore, an attack against the Houthi in Yemen by us and our allies is illegal in international law. And why do you think the Albanese government has chosen to back the US and the UK now when the initial decision was not to send a warship? Is this being interpreted as a strategy? What kind of concerns does this raise? Well, we're still not sending a warship and we're still not sending actual troops on the ground, but we're certainly backing this operation. We've got 11, apparently, uh, Australians involved in some fashion One of the main concerns for us in our organisation is the the secrecy with which all this is done. The people of Australia are not being told what our government is doing in this regard. And you'll remember that the committee that looked into how Australia goes to war agreed that uh, there would be a requirement to recall Parliament 
if Australia was becoming involved in any armed conflict overseas. We are. And have they recalled Parliament? No, they haven't. And has the government given given any grounds to justify the lack of parliamentary input at all? No, none. And, and, and they haven't excused themselves at all. Military experts are suggesting that these attacks on Yemen could escalate the situation further. How concerned are you about the potential consequences in the region? Australians ought to be very concerned about this and worried about what Australia is getting into. The, the real problem with what's going on in Yemen is that even, even though Australia's commitment is very small, the thing could blow out into a wider regional war and, and Australia could be implicated in, um, in this. It will be illegal and Australia will be committing war crimes. So while we're on the one hand accusing Israel of, of war crimes or, or the crime of genocide, we could be committing war crimes ourselves in Yemen. The government has was quite hesitant to be vocal in calls for an immediate ceasefire um, in Gaza. What does this, this say about the government or about Australia in general that they've been so quick to act now that a, a trade port has been, been threatened? Well, the answer is always the same. It's because our allies want us to do it. And we have once again, joined up at the US and UK uh, behest with a coalition of so-called like-minded or willing. The, the, the exact performance 20 years later is being repeated again. And Australia ought to know better than to get involved in yet another illegal war. There is nothing wrong with a statement by Australia calling for an immediate end to illegal attacks, calling on the Houthis, for instance, and indeed Israel as well, uh, for an immediate end to illegal attacks and the release of unlawfully detained vessels and crews. That's a perfectly reasonable thing for us to be calling for. <laughs> but if we're saying that to Yemen, why aren't we saying that, exactly that, to Israel? And we're not being consistent. We're getting stuck into the Yemenis, into the Houthis in Yemen, in a way that we're not applying to Israel. And you spoke about a lack of transparency. How does that lack of direct communication impact the situation at hand? Well, that is another respect in which uh, the, the recommendations of the committee on how Australia goes to war are being ignored because one of the things they did agree to do was to uh, exercise much greater transparency and accountability. P uh, the, the Defence Minister, Richard Miles, made that statement himself, and now that the time has come to implement it, we don't see it. And transparency in the way Australia goes to war is something we have never had. That was Dr Alison Brunofsky from Australians for War Powers Reform ending that report. Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Program.
Oxfam Australia's latest annual report on wealth inequality shows billionaires in Australia have doubled their wealth since 2020, despite the global pandemic and the cost of living crisis. The report, called Inequality Inc., revealed billionaires have increased their wealth by 70%, while many everyday Australians are struggling to put food on the table. Oxfam is calling on the Australian government to scrap the Stage 3 tax cuts and implement a progressive taxation system. The Wire's Eduardo Jordan spoke to Rod Goodburn, Interim Director of Programs at Oxfam Australia, to learn more about the country's growing wealth disparity. Yeah, for sure. Oxfam conducts analysis every year uh, and publishes the results uh, around this time because it coincides with the World Economic Forum that's held in Davos. uh, And that's a, a gathering of some of the world's richest and most powerful people. So we produced this inequality report this year. It's called Inequality Inc. Uh, and it looks at the growing gap between uh, the rich and everybody else. And what it shows is that the wealth of the three richest Australians has more than doubled since 2020 at a staggering rate of $1.5 million per hour, whilst people are doing it really tough with the cost of living crisis. So the report shows that the the total wealth of Australian billionaires, as you mentioned, raised more than 70% in the middle of a living crisis in Australia, which is outrageous. Could you please expand on this issue? Yeah, for sure. As you've said, the cost of living is going up for everyday Australians. And as well as that, we've seen people around the world having to deal with climate crises, with uh, hunger, um, famine, poverty. There's also conflict, as, as we all know. And in fact, 5 billion people in the world have grown poorer whilst um, the rich, the billionaires and millionaires have amassed increasing amounts of wealth, wealth that they couldn't ever possibly spend in their lifetime. So we think this demonstrates that our economic system is rigged in favour of corporations and the very wealthy, and it's time that governments intervene to do something to address this growing gap in, uh, in inequality. In the report also, uh, you mentioned progressive taxation. So what's what's progressive taxation and why do you believe this could help minimize the wealth inequality? Progressive taxation in its simplest form is just that as people earn more money, they make uh, more of a contribution to the public services and the, the public goods that we all enjoy. So at the top end, if you're earning over 200, 250,000 or a million dollars or even more, if you have incredible wealth, we believe that you should be able to make more of a contribution than people who are on an average income or, or a low income. What we find though in our research is that the very wealthy and corporations find ways of dodging tax and so they actually Pay uh, often they'll pay less than what people who are on lower middle incomes are paying. So a progressive taxation system would see people pay more gradually as they increase their income, and that will of course help address inequality because it means that um, government revenue is able to support education, health, housing, and those sorts of things that make a difference in the lives of everyday people. Now, what would you like the Australian government to do to reduce this wealth inequality? Yeah, we've got a number of recommendations that have come out of this report. The first one is to scrap the Stage 3 tax cuts that are on the books to start this year in July. And so that would see 
people who earn over $180,000 per year get a tax cut of $9,000, while people on lower middle incomes get a lot less than that. Now, we think that there are a number of ways to help people on low and middle incomes, but getting rid of the stage three tax cuts would mean that there's $240 billion over the next 10 years that would get returned to the government revenue and be able to pay for things like transport, health, education and housing issues and also help us transition to a green energy economy and deal with some of the the crises that are flowing from climate change. Another is a wealth tax on billionaires and millionaires. So getting them to pay just two to five percent more on their wealth would increase our revenues by up to about $33 billion per year. And again, we could build 75,000 houses with that money, as well as contributing our fair share towards international development to help our region become stable, prosperous, and a great place for everyone in our region to grow up in. And then the third thing is that we think that corporations should pay up the windfall profits tax way in which we can get governments to do that is by building pressure from the public. So we actually need a massive social mobilisation of people who care about inequality issues and care about an appropriate and fair distribution of wealth amongst everyone. That was Oxfam Australia's Rod Goodburn there, ending the story by The Wire's Eduardo Jordan. You're listening to The Wire independent current affairs on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan in Mianjin, Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Alice Springs on ACCC 102.1 FM, to our listeners in Hobart on Edge Radio and to the other side of the country, to Radio Galari in Broome, Western Australia. New research from optometrists predict nearly half the world's population will be nearsighted by 2050, with increased screen time named a contributing factor. Though scientists believe genetics play a role in short-sightedness, its prevalence has risen in recent decades, likely due to the role technology plays in our everyday lives. The Wire's Tony Pankalewick spoke with Professor Isabel Jalbert from the School of Optometry and Vision Science to learn more about myopia and general eye care. Often also called short-sightedness is when the eyeball is growing abnormally, so it tends to elongate, so it grows more than it should. And what that does is the light rays, when you're looking in the distance, will then focus in the wrong part of your eyes and it will cause blurry vision. Myopia is something that we're interested in and concerned about because it often starts in childhood and we've seen that the rates of myopia have been increasing in a decade. How much does genetics play a role in our eyes versus the current technological climate? What's the correlation and what does current research say about it? We do know genetics definitely plays a role in myopia. So, for example, if one of your parents is myopic, if they wear glasses in the distance, about three times more likely to have a child with myopia. And if both parents are myopic, you're about six times more likely for children to develop myopia. You know, that says that there's definitely a role for genetics. But it's the environment that children grow in is also a really, really big factor 
it's really the combination of genetics and environment that's responsible for development of myopia. And because of the changes in the environment in which we grow, we think that's largely responsible for the increase in the rates of myopia that we've been seeing around the world for the last few years. Obviously, centuries ago, we do not have modern technologies that we do, like smartphones and computers and all. But what caused myopia and bad vision in the first place? Like, what is being speculated by researchers? Like, do we know the answer? So, in terms of genetics, researchers are still trying to identify which genes. So, more than, I think, 50 genes have been linked to myopia. So, it's genetics are not simple. And that's certainly something that geneticists are looking into. But in terms of the environment, What's changed is the environment we're exposed in. So we're much more likely to live in cities and people go to school more. So we read a lot more, we're exposed to screens a lot more, we spend a lot less time outdoors. So we think that that's probably one of the big reasons why the rates of myopia have been increasing. What's the future outlook if things don't change, like the percentage of people that are going to have myopia? So it's predicted that by 2050, 50% of people around the world will have myopia. So easy to remember, 50% by 2050. Those rates, they're different in different parts of the world. But if we look at Australia, it was predicted that more than a third of Australians would be myopic by 2020. We haven't talked about why that's a concern, but it's not only a concern because you're going to have to wear glasses to see in the distance, but it's a concern because it's associated with an increased risk of some really challenging eye conditions as people get older. Do blue light glasses actually work helping with the vision and everything? So people have looked at that. So the latest, what we call systematic reviews, where people look at all the evidence that's been published and summarise it, they've shown that there's really no clear benefits of wearing the blue blocking lenses in terms of your vision. So I can't speak to other parts of your body, so there potentially may be a benefit for sleep, for example, and things like that. But in terms of vision, there's no clear benefits demonstrated of wearing those glasses. So there's other things that we're much more likely to recommend that are much better for your eyes, particularly if people are interested in preventing the development of myopia. So we'd be recommending things like going outdoors, reducing screen viewing. Healthy eating is of great benefit to the eye. So lots of fruits and vegetables, particularly promoting a diet that's rich in omega-3 and lower in omega-6 has been linked to clear benefits. We really, really important also that people don't smoke if they want to preserve their vision. And to wrap it up, how frequently should we get our eyes checked? So it's really important that children get their eyes checked before school to detect any conditions that can be diagnosed and treated early in childhood before vision fully develops. Professor Jalbert from the School of Optometry and Vision Science there, ending that report by The Wire's Tony Pankalewick. The Wire, independent news and current affairs for the last 15 years and still going strong. New research from financial institute Sultan Lime finds most Australians don't know what a credit score is, despite nearly 8 in 10 Australians having at least one financial product. The research finds around 65% of Australians are unfamiliar with or misinformed about credit scores. So 
what is a credit score? The Y's Eduardo Jordan spoke to Salt and Lime co-founder and CEO Will Keelan to find out. A credit score is a predictor of your financial behaviour that lenders look at uh, when they are kind of assessing your loan. Now, how that score comes together is it looks at how you may behave on other financial products in the past. So whether you've kind of paid, uh, you know, your your bills or your repayments on time, uh, the amount of loan inquiries that you've made for different types of kind of loans, and then any kind of troubles you may have had along the way, whether, you know, any you know kind of defaults or kind of declines and those sorts of things and uh, basically uh, all of those different aspects kind of come into uh, kind of consideration and there's this one score that kind of uh, kind of comes out for your your credit score and lenders are using that when they're looking to assess you when you're getting a loan uh, with them whether it's a mortgage or a personal loan or, or a car loan. And could you please tell us a little bit more about the research Sultan Lime conducted on credit score? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Salt and Lime is all about uh, considering our customers' financial well-being uh, and kind of giving them the tools to help improve their financial education around things that we're not really taught in school, um, you know, things like credit scores, you know, how kind of loans kind of come together and, and budgeting. And, and what we really wanted to do is a, a bit of research just to see how many Australians kind of knew the ins and outs of things like their kind of their credit scores and, you know, their kind of success rates of uh, kind of getting loans through, you know, their, their banks and those sorts of things. And so, you know, we conducted that with over kind of a, a thousand different uh, participants and kind of what we could see is actually that uh, 65% of Australians don't actually know their credit score, which is a huge, huge number uh, of Australians considering uh, 79% of Australians actually have a credit product. And then, you know, kind of on top of that, that's, you know, 64% of Australians didn't know at least one factor that would actually kind of damage their credit score. As you mentioned, 65% of Australians don't know their credit scores. And, and as you mentioned, it's it's a very high number. Are there any reasons for this? I really think it just kind of comes down to education. You know, we get taught so much whilst we're at school around kind of maths and science and, and history and those sorts of things. But it's quite rare that at school we're taught about financial education and really kind of learn, uh, we're so really taught about the things that will kind of support us in our financial well-being uh, in the future. Like I certainly don't remember being taught a credit score at school and it's not until you're out Uh, into the world of kind of finance and and lending that you actually begin to even know what a credit score may may even be. So I really think it comes just down to kind of education. Also, the research found that we don't know what can negatively impact our scores. Could you please expand on this issue and how can we avoid having this negative impact? Yeah, so, you know, things that can negatively impact your credit score, you know, far, you kind of too many inquiries or too many loan inquiries in a short sort of space of time can negatively impact your score. And because, you know, some institutions may look at that as, uh, you know, looking around for too many different places kind of for a loan, and that can be looked as a negative thing. You know, so, you know, if you're looking to get a loan, it's always good to do kind of your research in advance uh, and kind of make sure you kind of also kind of, you know, you go to the one lender or, or even, you know, potentially go to a broker who may be able to kind of help you um, with the, the right choice and the right fit uh, in, in lender. Uh, other things that can negatively impact your credit score, uh, you know, are kind of making your repayments on time. And if you are then going to have issues with making your repayments, being really proactive um, and calling your lender to let them know of your circumstances that are negatively impacting you. And now with these results from the research, 
How can we increase our financial literacy? So, I mean, increasing your financial literacy, it's all about, uh, you know, kind of learning, really. It's all about uh, kind of getting online and learning about the things that can kind of impact you. So learning a little more about your credit score, learning about the things that impact your credit score, you know, getting on great websites like Money Smart, the government website, which has all the kind of information that you, you know, you could want to really start or begin your kind of learning um, you know, on that. That was Salt and Lime co-founder and CEO Will Keelan there, speaking with The Wire's Eduardo Jordan. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening, wherever you are in Australia. The Wire has been produced today with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. You can check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbal and Jugger countries on which this program has been produced and we pay our respects to Aboriginal Elders past, present and emerging. Today, The Wire came to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan. Thanks so much for your company. And we'll see you next time on The Wire.